Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What's up, everyone? Welcome into another episode of Equal Play. I'm your host, Annie Costable. And our next guest is someone whose name I wrote down on a piece of paper when I launched this podcast years ago. I first came across her work when she was the head of content at the Players' Tribune, but she has since co-founded one of sports' most recognizable media and commerce companies with four of the world's greatest athletes. I'm thrilled to welcome in Together's Chief Content Officer and co-founder, Jess Robertson. Jess, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm I'm just again thrilled to have you on. I was I, I feel like I'm having a fangirl moment because again, as a storyteller, I've I followed your work for a long time and just really admired the stories that you've been able to share. And before we get into, you know, all the greatness that is together, I want to go back to the beginning of your journey as a storyteller. So what was your first experience with storytelling, whether it was you know, a story you read or, or saw or watched or or one you shared that, you know, really changed the trajectory of your life? It's such a great question. I, I it's funny you say the word storyteller. It's only a word that I've started to use probably in the last few years, because it's like one of the easiest ways to describe what I do and what I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I somehow without being able to articulate it when I was growing up, knew that I wanted to tell stories. Mm-hmm. And in particular, for some reason, I was always drawn to telling women's stories. And um, I, when I was in college, I studied music business. I thought I would work at like a record label because I wanted to bring great music to the world and tell stories about incredible artists who were making great art. Um, but my minor was journalism and I really fell in love with music journalism. So I, not really knowing what a path looks like in that world. Cause I'm yeah. in a small town in Kentucky. It's, it's, there's really no sort of see it, be it for a girl like me where I'm from. I sort of, you know, got really close to a few of my professors who had done some work in that space and they got me like freelance writing gigs and I would go to local shows and write reviews or when a new album would come out, I would do like album reviews for like the school newspaper or for um, the local alternative weekly in Nashville. I would start to do like show previews, stuff like that. And my dream is anyone's dream. If you're sort of in that space, my dream was to work at Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. That was sort of the bastion of great, you know, sort yeah. of music journalism. And I got an internship um, when I was a junior in college and I moved to New York for the summer and I remember distinctly the feeling that I had when I was there, which was sort of holding on to it so preciously. Like, this is my dream. It's kind of real. Like, I don't actually work, but it's, it's a path. Like, I actually see my path for the first time coming true. And I left New York after that summer and I said, I have to get back here. Like, this is it. I'm coming back. And I got an opportunity um, 
to move back to New York while I was still in college, my senior year. And I was a, just a, an assistant editor on the digital side, rollingstone.com. And it, one, I felt like I had peaked. I was like, I'm 20 <laughs> years old and I, this is my dream and here I am. And what do I do next? Because I'm a planner. Um, but also it was really, um, incredible, especially being on the digital side first, because at that time, not to sort of age and date myself, but there wasn't a lot of emphasis on digital, which meant any of the storytelling that I did, any of the work that I did, any editing that I got an opportunity to be a part of, um, was very, very, very hands-on. I had an editor who would literally pull a rolly chair up next to him and sit me in that seat and we would edit stories together. So oh, I my learned gosh. And it's such so fortunate, um, and which it's it's hard for that to happen in days like these. But um, so not only did I get to tell stories, I learned what it means to tell a good story and how to tell a good story and not just sort of idea to interview to writing this like the art of editing and pulling everything together. So um, that's that's so formative for me when I think about being a storyteller is for some innate reason. I was always drawn to that. And somehow I've been on this path that through any iteration of my career at any place that I've been, it's all been, it's been about building either a story itself or a consumer brand. Um, and now in this case, uh, an impactful women's sports brand. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. So many questions hearing you talk about your start in the business, but the one that's jumping to the front of my mind, because I think nowadays storytellers coming up, or at least when I was in college, there was this idea that was getting pushed on me and other journalists and storytellers around me that you had to kind of pick a lane and stay there. Like if you were going to be a print journalist, that's what you had to do. If you were going to be a broadcaster, that's what you had to focus on. And that just isn't true. You can be multidimensional. You can share stories in a multitude of ways. And in fact, I think it's more valuable to have experience in multiple lanes versus being an expert in just one. So I wonder what your take is on that. And do you think, you know, you'd be where you are at if, if you were just focused on, you know, being a writer, like it sounds like your career started? That's uh, also a good question. I, so this, when I first started in, let's call it you know, my career in journalism, I, this was 2004. Mm-hmm. So what was happening at the time, especially at a place like Rolling Stone, you have this iconic sort of print focused institution. Right. And the product that you, everyone at that company, no matter what, even if you do have sort of a digital arm and a website and you're focused on original content there, like the focus on everybody is the magazine. Like that right. is the, that was the thing. So there was sort of um, an interesting division between those who were hyper-focused on like .com, we called it, and then the print magazine itself. And not many of them, those who worked on the print magazine and .com crossed over. It was pretty siloed at the time. Mm-hmm. But if you'll remember, like around that time coming into like the mid aughts, there's the rise of blogging. Right. So, and sort of like citizen journalism uh-huh. and people, I think that's, that's when I think about everyone's aperture going from being a writer to being a storyteller uh-huh. radically changed because you could create your own either video <laughs> photos, 
you're writing, you're basically building your own magazine without the intention of building a magazine. It's just a new fly form of things. We're interjecting the word I suddenly into the stories that we're telling, which in the past traditional journalism, you don't quite do that. Mm -hmm. That's something I'm sure you and I could spend a lot of time talking about. (laughs) Um, And I think in the end, sort of this, like what I call the democratization of media, especially through digital um, makes all of us better storytellers because it doesn't focus us into one particular thing. And it also really teaches you the business of content too. So it's not just like sort of your creative trade and your creative skill set. It's understanding the bigger sort of digital ecosystem and business around that thing um, that ultimately I think makes you a better creator. Absolutely. So this career of yours starting in in music storytelling and then eventually leaping into sports, how was that leap made and how did you overcome, I'm, I'm sure, certain fears and questions about what the future held to confidently make this jump from, you know, your job at Rolling Stone, AOL Music, MTV, I read you worked for, and then eventually to the Players' Tribune? One, I'm an avid sports fan. Um, <laughs> I grew up being obsessed with sports and music. Mm-hmm. I also think they are both prisms for culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the same way, like music creates icons within culture who can move culture forward. Sports does the same thing. Right. I was also an athlete and I still think I'm an like a full-time <laughs> athlete. I still actively compete in something all the time. Yeah. I've seen your boxing. You're certainly an athlete. Like you fall absolutely under that umbrella. You know, it's so funny because I said before I turned 40, I wanted to compete in an, like an amateur bar. I don't even know where this came from. If my mother listens, she's going to be so anxious because it's <laughs> her anxiety. But I was telling um, Alex, Alex Morgan mm-hmm. and her husband, Servando, about this. And Servando gave me the best nickname. So now I have <laughs> to I have to compete because I have this nickname that I need to live up to. OK, wait, you have to share the nickname now if you can. Servando has called me La Flama Blanca. So I. I, it's, it's too good for me not to wear that proudly on a short, right? right? So, yeah. So and can I'm, you also share the translation, like exactly what that means too for all of our listeners? The white flame. Love it. Dude, you have to get like gear made. Oh, we're working on it. Oh I don't God. actually know if I can wear it in the fight. Like there's rules about what you can and can't wear. So I'm just going to wear it in the street. Like I'm just going <laughs> to... Be proud and rock this gear. Um, or at least yeah. for your walk-in. Like, you have to wear something with oh, this nickname on it to to enter wherever you're competing at. Yeah, I'm going to have something I can zip off pretty easily. Love um, this. What a good nickname. So good. Um, so, yeah. So, I yes, I'm still actively competing in sport all the time. And mm-hmm. um, I remember vividly when the Players' Review launched. This was October 2014. And I was still working in music at the time. And Mm -hmm. as I said, there has been sort of this rise and introduction of I, the rise of social media, the rise of blogging, um, traditional means of storytelling was changing. The landscape was changing. The barriers between subject and journalists are certainly changing and had been changing at the time. And I found that I was just talking more in my day-to-day life and consuming more in my day-to-day life of sports and less so music, like music is a 
something I'm still very passionate about, but it's a younger person's game. I didn't want to be going to shows all the time. It was just, it's harder to keep up with culture that's moving so quickly. And um, my passion was more sport and the player should be launched. And I remember reading a story by Michael Carter Williams mm. um, on whether or not the Pistons were tanking. Uh-huh. And it, the way it was, the experience of that story, regardless of how I came to be, felt intimate. It felt like I was sitting at a bar and someone was sitting next to me and telling me something one-to-one that I hadn't heard before. Right. And there was something for me that was very inspiring and sort of transformative. And I was like, huh. I would, didn't want to work at a traditional sports company um, like a like an ESPN. I, I didn't think that that would sort of inspire me thinking of myself as a storyteller. And I met the president and co-founder, Jamie Musler, shortly after that and said, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. <laughs> I sport in music or prisons for culture. Um, I think we build something powerful here. And I got hired within, you know, like a day. So um, <laughs> I, yeah, I went on to, to run content there for about five years and it was probably one of the most transformative experiences in my life. So what advice can you give to listeners, to young journalists, to young storytellers about taking that leap based on inspiration? Like you read a story and, and thought to yourself, this is something I need to be a part of. Uh, what, yeah, what concrete advice can you give that can help others, you know, take control of their life in the same way? I think there's two parts to that. One, it's trusting that I call it kind of like a compass that we all have in our gut. Like for whatever reason, I was pulled to this particular kind of storytelling at, mm-hmm. at this point, this particular brand, because it was sort of the manifestation of something I've been thinking about and knew it's where I wanted to be or at least something I wanted to explore. And I, I, that's generally, and Sue Bird and I talk about this a lot, like I just make decisions based on my gut feeling. Mm-hmm. That said, I did the work to network and connect and get to know the people who were actually like touching and building and shaping that brand. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, if, if, if I'm a fit for them and if it's a place that I want to be and there's something that we can make happen here, um, going in and knowing what value you can add, um, what are they missing? I remember us sitting and having a conversation about storytelling in particular and sort of, you know, athletes, especially at this time, um, and they still are, when they come off this sort of adrenalized performance, they have to answer a lot of questions. And sometimes those questions are easy and sometimes the questions are really challenging and there's gotcha questions and there's not. And um, that relationship between media and athlete is critical. It's really, really important, but it's Mm -hmm. also sometimes can be very tense when, so is there a place where athletes could sort of dimensionalize themselves and feel like there's a space where they can kind of unburden and just be. And if you can tell a story in that, through that means that makes people think and makes people feel, you can start to dimensionalize an entire community of people. And I was like, I know how to tell stories like that. So it was, it was, um, it was probably perfect timing. It was um, instinct. It was an, an immense desire, certainly on my part. And also, like I said, I've been working in digital since 2004, like a lot had changed in that time. So I absolutely want to get into 
the existence of both the kind of storytelling you're describing where, again, you provide dimension to these athletes, coaches, leagues through storytelling and, and storytelling from their lens and also traditional media like myself who who comes into some of these settings and, and asks, like you said, those gotcha questions. But I, I first have to get into some of the work you did at the Players Tribune and one of those series that really captivated my soul was Bad as a Mother with Sydney LaRue Dwyer. And I'm just so curious how that project was born and the trust that had to be developed to share such a personal story like that. You can't see my face, but I'm smiling so big because that's <laughs> one, like, it's one of my favorite projects um, that we ever, ever made. Um, yeah. We, so we, we're trying to to do more episodic and video based storytelling. The Players Tribune is known for its like very long, beautiful, intimate essays, and um, we wanted to entertain and sort of like, dimensionalize in a different way. And for me, my passion through the Players Tribune has been, and sort of my personal mission in my day to day work there was to make sure we were centering women athletes mm-hmm. um, as often as we were their male counterparts. And one of the ways that I thought be fun and entertaining, um, but also really thoughtful and thought-provoking and um, truly dimensionalizing a woman and a woman athlete in her body would be to literally embed with um, an athlete who's about to welcome the birth of their child. Um, And Sydney is someone who we'd worked with before who is also just a wildly entertaining and deeply good person. <laughs> and there's the, her and her family dynamic, especially at the time was one that we thought would be a really just beautiful story to share. So we came to Sydney with this idea and said, like, we're going to be in your space a lot, right? We have to tape a lot. This is eight episodes. Right. Um, but you have this incredible narrative and there's an opportunity here to change the world. But more importantly, I think for women who've been through what you've been through, not just women athletes, um, for, for them to identify and to relate maybe in a way that they don't get to because they don't see their stories told in this way over time. And it was, you know, sitting down as you do when you have to spend a lot of time with an athlete talking through like, what's the story here? Tell me what you've been through. What do I not know? Everyone sees you and your success on the pitch and the hard work that you've had to put in there. Um, they know Cassius, they know Dom, but um, you've had a miscarriage. That's impacted mm-hmm. your family. That's impacted your own relationship with your body. Um, when you're an athlete, your body is literally your paycheck. So what right. happens when you make this decision to grow your family or you lose a child or you have to take birth control? Like there's just like so many layers to that conversation. And, um, you know, ultimately I think building trust is about listening um with real intent and empathy where you can and letting them sort of guide and lead on what that narrative should be like what spaces can we be in that she's comfortable um dom didn't want us in certain spaces and that's something we had to navigate based on their like family privacy and Uh so you, you you learn to just sort of like guide and and follow really follow where it's important for you to follow and lead where it's really important for you to lead and the big question for us was um would we be able to be in the delivery room when rue was born and it would come down to the trust she would have with us and the story and if it was pertinent and like really important to the story we would do it and um 
I also have to mention the real creator, the person who was holding the camera and helping uh-huh. build this dress, Emily Johnson, who was like literally shot, edited this entire thing, was in Orlando on a plane like every couple of weeks from New York, um, really built trust with Sydney um, because Sydney trusted us in the narrative, but particular trusted Emily and as a creative um, welcomed her into the labor room. She, the delivery room, we got a text maybe at like 10 30, 11 PM. And she said, I'm going to the hospital. My water broke. And Emily went there and was in the delivery room for what felt like 12 plus hours. It was probably wow. a long 24 for Emily. Wow. Um, and we had this beautiful moment on record, not just for the world, which I'm proud of, but more importantly for Sydney and her family. Like that's something that she'll have forever. And I'm just honored to be able to be a part of that in any way. Absolutely. And obviously shout out to Emily. She's actually how I came across your work. She was someone that I followed on social media and you know, obviously fell in love with her work as well and was able to, yeah, come across the work that you are creating. So social media is an incredible platform to build, network, all of the things. But something you brought up in that response was empathy versus intent and the balance between the two. And that's so interesting to me and something that I struggle with as a journalist, because there are times when empathy is not only necessary, but vital And then there's also times where your intent to share the most accurate story has to be strong, like stronger almost than, you know, your layer of empathy. And so I'm wondering how how you you balance that and what you see the balance of of empathy and intent being. I really want to know your answer to this question. (laughs) It's it's a little different. I think in the lane of storytelling that I've been in yeah. through the Players Tribune and together, empathy and intent for me is less about reporting cold, hard facts and and getting into the truth of like the the objectional or objective truth of something. Yeah, um, it is. It's more about who are you really and what has mm-hmm. been your experience. And I, with a story like. like for example, Brianna Stewart, her Me Too story in the Players Tribune. Um, this is actually a really good example of empathy and intent, and also having to bring in an element of like fact checking and truth. Uh-huh. Um, she she wanted to reveal sort of to the world for the first time that she had been sexually abused as a child, mm-hmm. and there's the intent of that story for me is like, I need the facts, I need the details and we need to like, I, there's a massive impact that you can have here. The empathy is you may not be ready to go there. Right. Like how, where are you going to go with this story? If you're really ready to go there, we'll go there. But if you're not, I have to respect that and understand right. that and work with that. And then there's the, you know, this, this was actual case. There are like real people involved. We have to be mindful about who we talk about and how we talk about that person. And, you know, litigiousness can come into stories like these. Right. So um, that was an interesting sort of triangulation, but the intent there for me as a storyteller is we can impact millions of lives. There's no shame around this. Um, There's no, you know, people, again, I go back to like maybe seeing their own journeys reflected for the first time. People feel less alone. They feel emboldened to share their stories. Like they can, you can change a life here. 
Um, the empathy is where do you want to go with it? Cause this is going to be a really traumatic experience potentially for you to have this conversation. Right. And then I remember before we published the story, I asked her, are you ready? Like, you know, that for the rest of your life, one, this is on record like publicly, but for the rest of your life, when someone tells your story, this inevitably will be brought up or now when you have to go and do traditional media, people are going to ask you these questions over right. and over and over again. Are you ready for that? And I asked that with intent, but also with empathy. And she said, yes, but it's a very, it's a di- very different lane for me than it is for you. So how do you balance that? So I love that this is, is like a co-interview here. I'm just showing that, yeah, we're both, we're both storytellers. So it's such a hard balance. And as someone who has bounced around in, in multiple positions, both in traditional media and not, it's something that I understand in my role as a traditional journalist is, is just so important. It, it, I cannot blur that line because it's, it's never about me as a traditional journalist. And no matter how empathetic I am to a certain situation that can't show through in my reporting. And so the example I'm thinking of right now is, you know, the independent investigation into the NWSL and this report that exposed emotional abuse, sexual misconduct that was systemic in this league was, was as a human, as a woman, gut-wrenching. Like you're reading these reports and that's okay to say, you know, I think that's important for media members to be honest about, about what they're reporting on. Obviously, I think, you know, again, that line can't be crossed, but yeah, you're reading this report and, and it's, it's gut wrenching and it does bring up all of these empathetic feelings, again, not just as a woman, but depending on your own life experience. And then you have to, again, go to your intent, which the intent is to share the facts of a situation. And in order to do that, you have to communicate with individuals who have gone through some of these just unexplainably difficult situations that no human should ever have to endure. And so what I always remind myself is that, you know, my, my job is to share the truth and the facts. And by doing that, it will hopefully prevent further damage from happening, further pain from happening. And as difficult as it is to sometimes, again, ask the questions when, because in my situation there, and in this situation specifically, there are times when people don't want to talk to you or, or you're coming to someone and again, they're not in the most open frame of mind and you have to be empathetic of that, but that's, those are the moments when your intent has to be stronger than your empathy because, and as long as your intent is rooted in, again, honestly, honesty and, and, and facts and, you know, sharing important stories, I think it's manageable. Like it's, it's, you're able to get through it, but there are times when you just really are distraught over again, your attempt to understand what someone is going through 
and your need to to get the facts from them. It's it's such a, a difficult you know line to balance, and I'm I, I'm working on it every day. And every day I I fail on either at the empathy side or at the intent side. You know, I'm never perfect at it. That's so fascinating to me because I also think about your role sort of like with the sky and you like you're, you're yeah. literally reporting on the same team throughout the entire season, which means you have to ask these players questions that maybe they don't want to be asked, but then you have to see them all the time. Like they, how does it change the dynamic between you and the team or the players based <laughs> on the facts that you need to report, but the person that you are and they know you to be like, right. To me, it's so fascinating. Well, I think this is, and and this is a great segue into this this next part of the conversation that I want to get into with you. But I think that's why it's so important, and it's an important conversation for us in sports media, but specifically women's sports media, to continue having, because at the end of the day, I have the utmost respect for every single human being I come in contact with to share a story, because I know the vulnerability of of them even answering a question as simple as how are you feeling today? Like, how's your body? How is your recovery? You know, these are all questions they don't have to answer. So the respect is always there on my end. And I think as long as that's felt from the players and the coaches that I come in contact with, whether they hate me on Tuesday and love me on Wednesday, like they know that the respect is there. And so on the days that they hate talking to me, I think, it makes it a little bit easier because you know, you're not talking to someone with, yeah, with bad intent. And I think Mm -hmm. that's so, so important, but then it's also important for me not to shy away from conversations about injury conversations that players don't want to have because at the end of the day, I think equality in sports media is covering our women's leagues the same way we cover men's. And to do that, you know, we we do need to get into, you know, the X's and O's and the nitty gritty of of our leagues and and the players and coaches that that make them up. And so my question now for you is, how do you see the this this new media, which, again, is so important, so valuable and just changing the entire media landscape, which, again, is centered on players, athletes, coaches, everyone controlling their narrative and balancing that with traditional media. Like, do you think that we're ever going to come to a place where these two can't coexist? I think it's a both and they, I think they're both sort of, I think they're symbiotic. I think one needs the other. Yeah. And I will say just because a, like a lane, like my storytelling lane is, you know, athlete X controls narrative Y, there's still some sort of like qualifiers for con- quote unquote controlling it. Like the, it's not um, carte blanche to use like personal POV as PR to hide this dirty thing over here. Right. right there's there's right. still sort of like, you know, um, questions that even as a storyteller and I did this at the player tribune and less so with together because we're more focused on just like celebrating and dimensionalizing and inspiring stories it's it's 
um, a little different than the Players Tribune, but um, there's there were questions that we would ask ourselves before we would even commit to a story and sometimes even ask the athletes directly. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like you can just come and tell your story and own your narrative without any hard questions whatsoever. There are right. definitely hard questions that go into it. But I think I think one can feed the other and I think one has to feed the other. Um, I sort of more traditional journalism to me is essential in truth and it's essential in growing um, the sort of sport category for women overall. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think that, you know, sort of the athlete centric storytelling is important to allow some of these women to build their own brands Mm -hmm. and the way they want to build them because other people aren't investing in them in quite the same way, but also, you know, sort of building communities around these brands. And it's really hard to connect with, let's call it women's sports or a woman athlete or whatever one, if you can't see her, but number two, if you don't know who she is, even when you do see her. Mm -hmm. So, so I think, I think they're incredibly symbiotic and I keep, I think they keep each other honest Mm -hmm. in the end. And I think they have to coexist. I agree completely. And, and again, my, my empathetic side is craves, you know, the stories that come from together and, and the players tribune and just the vulnerability that gets shared because of, again, that trust factor. And, and like you said, the difficult questions get asked, but there's this level of understanding and empathy that is tied to it that. I'm sure in a lot of situations evokes an even stronger answer and even more honest answer. And so the storytelling, yeah, like I said, from the Players Tribune and together is, is just incredible in my eyes. And, you know, you brought up obviously, you know, the ability for players to build their brands through storytelling. And as we all know, Brittany Griner has been wrongfully detained for nearly 300 days. It's 266 at the time that we're recording this podcast. But something that I don't think is being talked about enough, it's the circumstances that led to her building this lucrative career overseas, and that's inequity in pay. And the WNBA's max salary is a huge talking point, obviously. But more important than that is the lack of endorsement deals for professional women athletes. Companies control who they sign to endorsement deals and why. And so, so many athletes who play overseas, so many of the WNBA's athletes who play overseas, they're, they're not playing because they want to play all year round. They're playing to make up for lost revenue. And my question for you is how significant of a role has media played in this pay gap for women? Because that's something that I think we all need to be confronting way more often than we are. We could talk for hours about this. Yeah. I look at decision makers and legacy media companies all the time and say, you were part of the problem. Right. You have actually helped build and create the problem. Mm-hmm. And it's it goes deeper than that, though. I mean, as sort of we are socially constructed to view sports through a male lens. That goes back to some of the decision making at legacy media companies, what they center, how they tell these stories and why. Mm-hmm. And also what brands deem as... Um, worth their ROI, right? From endorsements to um, brand dollars in media companies, activations, how they activate at big tentpole events, certainly in the sports landscape, but elsewhere. And that goes back to women's sports as ground zero for every single ism that exists. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, 
gender, um, um, sexuality, race. I mean, all of it is sits ground zero in women's sports. Right. And we have been socially constructed not to value women period, but especially women of color, color, especially black women, especially queer women. Um, and, and women's sports is largely, um, constructed of those communities. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, yes, media is a huge part of the problem. If, if only 4% of media coverage is going and dedicated to women's sports, which isn't even talk about the quality, the depth, the diversity, right. then how are you, how are you going to close that gap? Because you're not building an audience. And if you're not building an audience, brands aren't investing in the space and they certainly aren't giving an endorsements to these women because they don't see them as valuable in the first place, which right. goes back to my sort of like social construct and bias and isms that exist in culture. Um, but to me, the way you can disrupt that cycle is through visibility and storytelling. Mm-hmm. If you can tell powerful, impactful human stories at scale, at the same quality, same level of diversity, with the same intent as you are doing in men's sports, then you can significantly close that gap because it takes women's sports out of the margins. Right now, we still qualify women's sports as women's sports, women's World Cup. Like We're right. already treating it as other. Mm-hmm. So at least if through narrative, you can start to pull it out of the margins and center it in every story that you tell and then sort of the <laughs> sort of undoing the um, viewing sports through a male lens just by osmosis, right? Like we're starting to consume it and we don't even think about it as other, it's just becoming part and parcel for our consumption. Then here's an audience and then there are brand dollars. And then the endorsements start to change based off of that. There have been decision makers, generations on top of generations who have decided that, these women are not worth the investment. And that is in part why Together Exists is to sort of say, can I curse on this podcast? Yeah. Oh my God. Curse away. I like sometimes hold myself back because I'm like, maybe this person doesn't (laughs) flow that way. But yes, absolutely. No, I mean, Together Exists is like, fuck that. Right. This is crazy. And I remember talking to Alex Morgan in 2019 and because I've known her through, you know, the course of my work at Players Tribune, and she had been thinking about building a media company. And what is it? What, what do we turn it into? What does it exist? Like, like LeBron can go and build Uninterrupted and Spring Hill, and Derek Jeter could build the Players Tribune, and Kevin Durant has thirty five ventures, and Steph Curry has Unanimous Media, and like all these, guys, like they're just like, and the dollars are there for them, but they right. aren't there for us. Like, fuck that. Let's go build it. And I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting for anyone else to decide that we are worth investing in. I'm going to go and I'm going to take my power and my privilege and my platform. And I'm going to build something that makes it so big and so cool and so undeniable that people have to invest. Oh my God. It's amazing. And in in turn has inspired other storytellers. Like I can say that when I started at the Sun Times and I came into the sports, you know, staff, there was a gaping hole in, in coverage and it was there was no coverage uh, about our, our women's sports teams or barely any. And I remember I, I started in the spring of, I think, 2018 and or maybe 2017. But it was the year that Tierna Davidson got drafted by the Red Stars first overall. And I started after she had been drafted. But the whatever draft that was going on when I started, um, I think the NBA draft was coming up and we were obviously all these outlets were reporting on who's going to go first overall. Like, you know, it was all of these stories, like draft boards, all of it. 
And I was like, where is our feature story on Tierna Davidson? Like, where is it? Because she's been with the Red Stars now for a couple months and we still don't have a, a, at least a feature story on her and how she came to be with the Red Stars, how she even came to be in, in women's soccer. And Tierna, you know, I'm sure all of our listeners know, women's soccer fans know, sports fans know, she has such an incredible story. Like she wanted to be an astronaut and then decided to become a women's soccer phenom. You know, it's like, she's a great human. She, there's so many lessons to be taken from her story and it didn't exist. And that was something that I was inspired to tell because of the way that, again, women were taking control of their own stories and their own narratives. And, and we're like, if you aren't going to do it, we're going to do it. And then that, you know, it, it trans it translated in my career. Like if you're not going to assign me to this story, I'm going to do it because there's some little kid out there who needs to hear Tiana's story in order to grow and become the person that they're destined to be. So, you know, I can directly say that women like Alex Morgan and, and others have inspired my career and, and, you know, will continue to inspire it. But I'm curious what you think the road ahead looks like for sports media and what we need to be focused on, you know, in the next 10 years to continue to close this gap. Cause this, as we know, is, is something that's, that's not going to be fixed overnight, unfortunately. Sports media has to invest. I mean, th- there's a great thing happening, which is together as a part of, I think, where if traditional sports media is not going to invest, they're not going to have beat reporters and writers the same way they do in the men's sports side, or um, there's no lead in programming, right? There's no draft board discussion. There's just like the, the amount of coverage is grossly unequal <laughs> to male sports. Um, more and more people have decided to go it alone. So together is one of them. Just when right. sports is one of them. I think what Highlight Her is doing is really important too. Like the gist is investing in women's sports coverage increasingly. Like that's, there is a swell of non, and this, you saw the same thing happen in the music industry, especially mm-hmm. in the nineties and beyond, like independent labels, right? And then the, and then the big labels have to buy the independent labels because they need what, um, they've made and what they built. And, you know, it's just like they grew the business. So, I think it's essential that outlets like ours exist because mm-hmm. we're doing the work day in and out like 24 seven, 365 where traditional media companies are not. And guess what? Brand dollars are really showing up like mm-hmm. a company like ours at year one with no audience until we built the thing, um, doubled our revenue target and we're on track to triple our revenue target. Like brands want to invest in space. They understanding, they understand the power and influence of women, in particular women athletes. It just wasn't a place really for them. There's no storytelling. Now that there is storytelling, like they're, they're showing up into this space. I think we're seeing that boom bust cycle that happens every couple of years around the world cup or Olympics changing. Yes. I think there's going to be consistent coverage and investment in this space, not every two years around those tent poles, but consistently as viewership increases, shockingly, if you show the games, people will watch them. Can you imagine? Right. Just um, like if you write about the teams, people will subscribe and read your paper. Right. Right. And then there's <laughs> there's an audience to be had and then the brands love that there's an audience and then people like media companies love brand dollars. So then it's this vicious cycle and then you know it very well. I know it incredibly well. 
we we hope it's disrupted every couple of years around these tent poles and then it's sustained. But in the last, call it what, 25, 30 years, it hasn't been. So I'm hopeful though, that we're at sort of the tip of a spear right now. It feels mm-hmm. like we are. More brand dollars are being invested in the space. Um, ownership is even changing. Um, I'm just looking at like what's happening in women's sports and ownership period. We're building communities around these teams and leagues in a way that we haven't in the past. There's more storytelling avenues than traditional yeah. media in the past, which I think is very powerful. And then you have these athletes who have their own incredible platforms. And the thing that I think about all the time is women's sports fans have had to be digitally native. Mm-hmm. They like they live and eat and breathe. And you see this all the time. I, mean, I think about WNBA Twitter as an example. Like there is no shortage of people who are ready to engage and consume and buy and watch because they have been starved for so, for so long. long, so long, just living off of crumbs. Right. And now if it's not, if you build it, they will come. They're already there. Right. They're literally already there. They've been waiting. They've and they're waiting. early adopters, right? They're not going to linear. They're going, they're, they live digitally and athletes have built powerful brands and communities because these people are already digitally native. They're already there. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's just a conscious decision to invest. And I think it's going to take some people showing proof of concept together, hopefully can be one of those people or one of those brands, one of those companies or a big brand like Nike can invest in women in a big way going into a world cup year and mm-hmm. with new campaigns and going into Olympics. Like there's huge opportunities. You're seeing it happen. Um, I think we'll really know and feel the impact over the next 18 months. I'm so excited for it. And I know we're wrapping up here, but before I let you go, I did want to get one more question in about together and just it's, it's, beginning it's it's first stages and we know that you know you co-founded together with Alex Morgan Chloe Kim Simone Manuel and Sue Bird it was launched in March of 2021 but it was conceptualized years before that and i'm just curious if you remember the first moment the first time you heard about and discussed being part of the platform and how your life has changed since I vividly remember the first conversation and then the first sort of big meeting with Alex. This was mm-hmm. 2019. I was at a brand conference and even in New York City and I was sitting in one of those theaters and there's you know presenters and people going on and off stage and I got a text that said, "Hey, um you should connect with Dan Levy. That's Alex's agent." Mm-hmm. Um Alex is, is thinking about building something and I had a quick conversation with Dan, who I've known and worked with for a long time. And it's like, yeah, we're just thinking about building a media company. What do you, I don't know, like, would you be interested in just like hearing more and, and talking more about that? And, you know, a couple of conversations take place. And then September, 2019, we had a long sort of like half day with Alex in Los Angeles Mm-hmm. And that's where the first whiteboard session happened. It was, what do you want this to be? Like, who do you want this to stand for? Like, who do you want to build this with? Mm-hmm. Like, who are you trying to inspire? Like, what do we, what's the tone of this thing? Like, what are the words that we would use to describe it? Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing, and it was different than working with someone like Derek Jeter, who was very passionate and very involved, but, you know, for the most part, trust you to make your decisions. Yeah. Alex leans in. She really knows. And she is so incredibly passionate about that. And she had the right words. 
asked the right questions, um, deferred in, in certain ways that made it feel like inclusive and collaborative. And she was so thoughtful about it. And I remember leaving that room, like, you know, you get sort of like, and the butterflies in your yes. stomach, but just like your heart just gets so full and your chest is so full in like a good, positive, like big, happy like way. Like you know you're in the right place at the right and time. I, it's the compass. And I was like, this is it. Well, will anybody care? I don't know. Let's talk about that later. But this is, this is it. This is it. We're going to do this. And I've felt that since then. It took us a couple of years to launch live to the world because of COVID, um, which was, you know, unfortunate on so many levels, but it actually allowed us to take our time and have enough runway to get the brand work right, um, sort of set up our four Avengers and get them really leaned into the brand and touch and infuse their DNA into the brand, um, set up some brand partnerships out the gate, and really more importantly, bank a lot of stories that we could you know, launch into the world whenever the brand launched into the world. I'm so glad that you said you know, your heart filled up and then you thought about, will anybody care? secondary, because I think that's so important for young people and just everybody actually screw just young people. Everybody should be, should be guided by is like, does this fill me up? Is this, does this feel right for me? Does this inspire me? Does this motivate me? And then worry about, you know, what everybody thinks later, because if you're being motivated by, by those things, I think it's always going to be a hit it's always going to work out. It's always going to lead you in the right direction. That's right. And we say all the time that together is a brand that doesn't really seek permission. We're just going to exist and enter the room and take up that space that we deserve to take up. And that's sort of kind of my life philosophy too. And um, I didn't care if anybody cared because I knew that we would make something so cool and so resonant that people would be forced to care. Exactly. So cheers to not caring whether people care. Cheers to not seeking permission. And cheers to you, Jess, and together and the time you've given me here at Equal Play. I I can't thank you enough. <music> 